We are looking today at the second sola, sola fide, or faith alone. Last week we looked at sola scriptura, or scripture alone, and we saw that it was the principal cause of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther argued that scripture alone was the final authority, but the Roman Catholic Church disagreed and argued that the church, its hierarchy, its tradition, and its normative interpretation of Scripture were sources that could be cited as equally legitimate. But the Reformers never agreed to that. They understood that Scripture was inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 They said it's not... Scripture plus, and then just add on what would go with it. No, they said it's Scripture alone. Now, the second sola, sola fide, addresses the material issue, the core theological matter over which they disagreed. And what was the core theological matter? It was that of justification by faith. The Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church could not agree about either the nature of Christ's atonement or the means by which its benefits are received, even though Paul addressed both in his letter to the Romans. For example, he said in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's the benefit. The nature of Christ's atonement was for the purpose of redemption. The angel of the Lord said to Joseph in Matthew 1.21 that Jesus would save his people from their sins. That's the point of it all. And so using Paul's terminology in Romans 3.24, we are being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's because Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justifications, Romans 4.25. So Luther said of this issue of justification by faith that that was the article by which the church stands or falls. Luther believed this article was the head and the cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church. That without it, the church of God cannot subsist one hour. But we have all kinds of people today saying nothing about justification by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're told just to pray a prayer and that's it. Just pray and go on your way, not as a changed, transformed child of God, but as one who has now appropriated Christ to their lives. But that's not the gospel. That's not what brought about the Protestant Reformation. People were already praying, as the church told them. They did not know the purpose and the benefits of justification because they were locked out of the Scriptures by both the language it was in and the clergy who withheld it from them. Hence comes John Wycliffe. Hence comes John Huss. Hence comes Martin Luther. Hence comes John Calvin, who challenged the Roman Catholic Church with sola fide. 
John Calvin, in his debate with Cardinal Soduleto, he said that justification by faith was the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. Remove the knowledge of this doctrine, he argued, and the glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion is abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. It was faithfulness to this article of faith that determined the outcome of the conflict. Luther said at the beginning of our preaching, the doctrine of faith had a most happy course. And down fell the Pope's pardons, purgatory, vows, masses, and such like abominations which drew them the ruin of all popery. And if all had continued as they began to teach and diligently urge the article of justification, that is to say that we are justified neither by the righteousness of the law nor by our own righteousness, but only by faith in Jesus Christ, doubtless this one article by little and little had overthrown the whole papacy. Luther correctly saw that if sinners are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, then the whole system of salvation rooted in priest-operated, church-based religious works would collapse. And a new Christ-centered, faith-based Christianity would arise from the ashes. And that's exactly what happened. It does us good to know our history. It does us good to know the history of the Protestant Reformation because... Everything moving forward has been based upon that in Scripture. And it was a champion of Scripture that the Reformation brought. It brought attention back to Scripture. It is Scripture that gives us the understanding of sola fide, the understanding of faith alone, by grace alone, sola gratia, in Christ alone, sola Christos, for the glory of God alone, solo Deo Gloria. You see why now I have them on the wall? That's the gospel. So, again, Luther correctly saw this. So the question this morning is, how can one be made right with God? Here's the answer. This is what Paul said to the Philippian jailer, Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The answer is by faith. Sola fide. You know, it took a little while and there's some debate as to when Luther actually got saved. Some believe it happened before he nailed his 95 Theses to the door door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Some believe, no, it was after that. But he came to that same conclusion, obviously. And listen to what he has to say when he describes his conversion. He said, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I have given heed to the context of the words, namely... In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness of God 
with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. He says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Did you hear what Luther said? He said the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Now, for that to happen, Luther had to first come to the understanding that salvation is solely of the Lord. Steve Lawson said, This strong declaration means that every aspect of man's salvation is from God and is entirely dependent upon God. The only contribution that we make is the sin that was laid upon Jesus Christ at the cross. The Apostle Paul affirmed this when he wrote, From him and through him and to him are all things, Romans eleven thirty six. This is to say, salvation is God-determined, God-purchased, God-applied, and God-secured. From start to finish, salvation is of the Lord alone. See, where the Catholic Church didn't like the word alone, there are many in the Protestant church that don't like that word either. Because they think that they contribute something to their salvation. But salvation is of the Lord alone. He doesn't need your help to save you. You get that? Well, that's what we hear in Genesis 49, 18. As Jacob is preparing to die, he calls his sons and blesses them, and he says of God, he says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Whose salvation? Your salvation. Hannah understood this too as she prayed in 1 Samuel 2.1, rejoicing in, quote, your salvation, end quote. After Asaph and his relatives were assigned by King David to give thanks to the Lord because the ark had now returned, Asaph called on the people in 1 Chronicles 16.23 and he said this, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. It's His salvation. And the only reason why we're recipients of it is because He has graciously given it to us. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews stated a question. And he said it this way in Hebrews 2.3, How shall we escape... If we neglect so great a salvation. And listen to this. After it was at the first spoken by Paul. The Lord. Your salvation. His salvation. This salvation belongs to God. It was first spoken through the Lord. No one would know about any kind of deliverance if it wasn't for the Lord intervening. And we see that first intervention in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. And I'm thankful for that intervention. Because that intervention is an example 
of the first sinners that his intervention is still going on today with the rest of us sinners, right? Acts 28, 28 calls it the salvation of God. He originated the idea. He originated the plan of man's redemption. And therefore, it's no wonder that Revelation 19, 1 says that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Because He is the author of salvation. He is also the executor of that salvation. Salvation and glory and power belongs to Him. Now this is what I would call a paradox we find in Scripture because we see in Scripture where salvation originates with the Lord, but it also says Jesus is our Savior. You get that? Salvation originated with the Lord, and Jesus is our Savior. What's that make Jesus? Lord? Yeah? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The lost people are the people for whom He died. So Scripture basically says of Him that there is no other name given for salvation. We're told in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else. That should have ended everything in the 16th century with the Roman Catholic Church. Because to them it was Christ plus the church. Christ plus the sacraments. Christ plus works. Christ plus keeping the Ten Commandments. And a host of other things that they came up with. But there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. You can't come any other way. That's why salvation is through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, according to Hebrews 12.2. Salvation is of the Lord. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Again, it wasn't Christ plus the sacraments or the Roman Catholic Church. Salvation is apart from the works of man. The Roman Catholic Church said in the Second Vatican's Council Decree on Ecumenism, and I quote, For it is through Christ's Catholic Church alone, which is the universal help towards salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be attained. Did you hear what that said? This is their own words. For it is through Christ's Catholic Church alone, which is the universal help towards salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. Heresy. That's what that is. The 94 Catechism reaffirms the existing teaching of Vatican II, that salvation can be obtained only through the Roman Catholic Church, the catechism actually leaves no doubt that the Catholic Church is necessary for salvation. And this is what Luther and Wycliffe and Huss 
And a lot of others opposed. It's not Christ plus. It's Christ alone. All of these solas are intertwined. Because again, they're the gospel. It's not by works. It is by grace through faith. It's not through Christ's Catholic Church. This is not Christ's church. When you say something like that, you're not the church of Jesus. If the church is ignoring this article of faith, it's not the church, it's a cult. The scripture says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Even the Apostle John said in John 3, beginning at verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So they're speaking of the cross, so that whoever believes in Him, believes in Christ, has eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's only faith in Christ, not the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that how that happens is by the Spirit acting upon the soul from within and producing within us a new principle of spiritual action. In other words, it's a work of God in your soul. The Bible calls it regeneration. Titus 3.5 uses that word regeneration. It says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The word regeneration only occurs two times in the New Testament, but it's speaking of the new birth. God regenerates His people. He grants them faith for salvation. That's Ephesians 2.8. He also grants them repentance. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4. He changes their will, making them willing to come. The only thing that your will is able to do prior to Christ's intervention is works. And it's works that never can satisfy a holy God. Never. You could spend your whole life trying, you could spend your whole life living a good life, but that's not going to get you to heaven. Because that says you believe that your works were more powerful than Christ's works. And that your works were good enough to save you and to merit salvation. See, that little word merit, the Catholic Church used that word. Uh, you want the merits of grace, you want the merits of salvation, then you've got to do this. Keep the Ten Commandments. If you want the merits of salvation, you, you have to buy the indulgences for forgiveness of sin. Again, God is the one who regenerates 
His people. He is the one who grants them faith and repentance. He is the one who changes their will. He makes them willing to come. Listen to these two verses that are found in John chapter 6. One is in verse 44. Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Did you hear that? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there has to be a drawing from the Father. Secondly, over in verse 65, he essentially just about says it again, but he adds something else there. He says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So the first verse said that God has to draw you. The second one says that God has to grant this to you. Notice in the verse it says that no one can. That is speaking of ability. You do not have the ability to come. You have to be drawn. You have to have that granted to you. You know, over in Philippians 1.29, when it speaks of persecution in that verse, and I highlight it every time we talk about persecution by basically saying that God has graciously granted that persecution to us. But it also says there that he has also graciously granted us faith. That, again, is a gift. It's not a gift that you can attain on your own. It's not a gift that you can plead for God to give to you. This is a gift that he chooses to give to whomever he wills. See, that's the part that, that we don't like because that takes, us out of, takes it out of our hands. Just like the first point that I made, that salvation is of the Lord, that takes it out of our hands. And it puts it in God's hands alone. So he says no one has the ability to come unless... Now here's the necessary condition. Unless the Father draws him first... Unless it has been granted from the Father. That's the condition. So it's all of God. <clears throat> you might be saying, well, I have to believe. <clears throat> or I have to repent. Well, we already said, Ephesians 2.8, faith is a gift. 2 Timothy, repentance is a gift. These are gifts. So it's not something that you can conjure up on your own. See, the way that God gives this is through the preaching of the gospel. That's how he initiates faith. That's how he brings about regeneration. It's through the preaching of the gospel. See, it's nice to invite people to church, and we should invite people to church. But more importantly, we should share the gospel with them because it's the gospel by which they're only going to be saved. It's not going to come by an invitation to church. But again, there's nothing wrong with inviting them. We want to compel them to come in so that they hear the gospel, right? But they also need to hear the gospel from you because you know them. You might be their neighbor. 
might be a family member, might be a friend. It's obviously somebody that you know, somebody that you've been praying for, somebody that you've been reaching out to, somebody you're concerned about. But no one got saved by being invited to church. No one got saved by an invitation. No one got saved apart from the gospel being preached to them. The necessary condition, we have to preach the gospel. That's, that's what we're to do. That's our obligation. That's our part. What's God's part? <laughs> Everything. He draws and He grants. And it's only through regeneration of the new birth can anyone receive Him or believe in Him. Because, see, here's the issue. Ephesians 2.1 says that prior to our salvation... We're dead in trespasses and sins. Look at that with me. Ephesians 2, 8, or rather 2, 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. See, he's speaking to them in past tense because this isn't true about them anymore. They've been made alive by God, according to verse 4 and 5. And that's the same thing that's happened to you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. He made you alive. He brought you out of that state of deadness and gave you new life. Now, let me ask you this question. Can you take yourself out of a state of deadness? No, you can't do that. Just think about people that physically die. They don't have the power over death to raise themselves back to life. They don't have that kind of power. Jesus did. He said, I lay down my life and I take it back again. No one takes it from me, John 10. But I freely give it. Yes, Acts tells us that he was nailed to the cross by the Roman authorities. But it also says that that occurred by the predetermined plan of God. God did charge men with crucifying the Messiah. But the Messiah gave his life freely. You know, when I saw on the news yesterday that Israel was at war, immediately I started praying. And then I started letting people know who didn't know about that. And then the second thing I got thinking is the verse of Scripture that says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The peace of Israel. Israel will not have any peace till they come to terms that their Messiah already came. Jesus is their Messiah. They don't recognize, many don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. I remember one day when I was at this one place and uh, I pulled up and I was talking to this gentleman through the window and he had one of those little caps on his head indicating he was Jewish. And, and I said, so Jesus is your Messiah. I knew what he was going to say. <laughs> I stirred it up anyway. And I said, so Jesus is your Messiah? And man with much anger he said no he is not my messiah i shook my head he's mine and he can be yours 
But they reject the Messiah. Israel is apostate. And so, again, when I was reading all that and looking at all that and watching the videos and reading the news reports and things like that and letting others know about it, I was just thinking about they have rejected their Messiah. And they're thinking that they're going to be able to recognize their Messiah when he comes. The only problem is they won't be able to prove through genealogical records that this person whom they're calling their Messiah is truly the Messiah. The whole purpose of the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 is to show that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. And guess what? Those genealogical records were destroyed in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. It's very difficult for Jews to go back and discern what tribe they're from. And how important is that? That's extremely important. Israel has been preparing for the longest time to rebuild their temple. They want to rebuild their temple, return to the sacrifices. They already have everything they need to do that. The only thing that's in their way is what happened yesterday. So there will be a gentleman who will come on the scene. He will be a great world leader. And he will be able to secure a treaty with Israel and her neighbors. The treaty will only be for seven years. But Israel will enjoy a false peace, a temporary peace. In fact, it won't last for seven years. It will last for about three and a half years. Because in the middle of that seven-year period, the Antichrist, this world leader, will break that treaty. He will go into that temple and he will declare himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is what Matthew 24 calls the abomination of desolation. Run, he says. When you see this happen. Don't even go back into your house and get your things. You need to go. You need to run. Because it's going to get really, really bad. When the Antichrist is revealed for who he is, he will turn up the heat on Christians. He will kill as many as he can. Their voices will cry out from under the altar. You read that in Revelation 6. God will begin to pour out the seal judgments. See, th this is the part that the church hadn't been able to decide, are we here or are we gone? Well, I think there's a greater problem than that. I think the church is not ready for Christ. I think the church is not looking for Christ to come. Because if they were, they would be being persecuted even now. Because they would be, one, living a godly life, as Paul said, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Number two, they would be preaching the gospel. And not everybody receives the gospel, do they? Sometimes you have people you talk to, sometimes you have people in your family, you talk to them once, twice, and they just blow you off and they tell you, to stop sharing that with them. I've had that happen with me uh, numerous times. Jesus is coming back. And all the things that are going on, that's the, really the third thing that I was thinking about when I was seeing that Israel's at war. And I even said this to 
my wife and I said, you know, in, in, in our whole time of being believers, I've been a believer now for 39 years, almost 40 years, and I don't know if I can think of any time where Israel actually declared war. Now, they've been fired at. They've had rockets flying over into their territory, into the civilian areas, and that's what was so bad about this yesterday. Over 300 civilians were killed, and they were also, many of them were taken, kidnapped, dragged into their tunnels, and who knows what's happened to them. But you know, in, in, in all these years now, I have to go back and check my history, but I don't think I have ever heard that statement that Israel's at war. That's prophetic. Someone put on Facebook one day that we're seeing the Bible being lived out right before our eyes today. Well, that's been true for a long time. If you believe the Bible, right? But I understand what they were saying. We're seeing gross immorality in our culture. We're seeing the church, instead of being salt and light, and confronting the culture, it's becoming the culture. Uh, we're seeing the church that was told in Romans 12 to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're seeing them being conformed to this world. We're seeing the church no different than the world. How can we offer up a gospel that calls for repentance and faith if the church is not willing to hold up those articles? It's as if to say we need another reformation. And this time in the Protestant church. Our salvation is a gift from God. It's solely of the Lord. It's apart from works. It's totally by faith in Christ. Listen to this verse, John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received Him, that's an, an illustration of faith, to them He gave the right or the authority to become children of God, even to those, <clears throat> even to those, <clears throat> I just don't know where that comes from, even to those who believe in His name. Now listen to this. Who were born, not of blood, you don't come into the kingdom through any kind of blood relationships. You don't come into the kingdom by the will of the flesh. You don't wake up one day and say, I think I'll become a Christian. Or the will of man. Our will is corrupted. We don't choose Christ. We choose everything but Christ. We choose sin. That's what we choose. And if you don't think I'm telling you the truth, how often do you does your mind wander into sin? Thinking back on those sinful moments where you got gratification and you're actually reliving it in your mind, which is just as sinful as the act. He says, no. That authority to become children of God to those who believed came from those who were born of God. Let me read the verse again. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. The new birth. Again, that's what was meant when he said the Spirit acting like the soul within and producing within us a new principle of spiritual action. Salvation is through faith, granted by the Father, drawn by the Father. We're given as a gift to the Son, and the Son saves us. That is all throughout the Gospel of John. So, therefore, it's not by the works of the law. Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The law was never meant to save anyone. It, it was given to reveal our inability to keep it and our inability to be saved by it. And all the law could do is condemn us, not give us mercy. Romans 9.16 says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's not by our works. It's by grace. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Do you understand that? Paul said to Timothy, reminding him that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by the works of the law. Salvation is not your good works. It's not religion. It's not rituals. It's God's work on the cross. If you're taking notes, well, number three, salvation is by the work of Christ. It's by the work of Christ alone. He didn't need our help. Christ did all the work. We did nothing but contribute the sin that made it necessary. Yeah, you really understand that? that? That was our part. Our sin made Him going to the cross necessary. You see, we were cursed by the law. We couldn't keep it. We were condemned by it. And when Adam sinned, his new sinful condition would be passed on to all his descendants, also making them guilty before God, as if they were eating the same forbidden fruit. That means every person is a sinner because every person is in Adam. He is our federal head. Even the baby in its mother's womb is a sinner. David Reiterated that in Psalm 51.5 when he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying he was born out of a sinful relationship from his parents. He was saying his condition was iniquity and sin just like his parents. There's not one person who is not a sinner. Or I could rephrase that. There was one person who was not a sinner, and that's Jesus. And sinners killed him. The Bible says, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that curse of the law, it tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not in the Roman Catholic Church. You ask, how is this so? Well, the answer is Jesus became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul said it another way when he said it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, Christ who never could have sinned was treated by God as if He did sin. And He did that for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So in order for you to be saved... You must understand that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. It's by faith alone. It's sola fide. Faith alone. Galatians 2.16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. It's in Christ alone, sola Christos. Salvation is not by works, it's by sola fide, it's by sola Christus. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. Let me remind you what Jesus said again in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That means He is the only way to the Father. And therefore the only way to heaven. Again, it's not Christ plus something else. The Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 23, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So those Jews that are there in Israel that are still apostate, still looking for their Messiah, and they reject Jesus, but they think they have God, just like many we read in the Bible. They don't have God. You reject Christ, you don't have the Father. That's what he said in 1 John 2, 23. In order to be saved, you have to come in faith to Christ, trusting in His atoning work on the cross for your sins. You have to give up your life to have Christ. You have to make the exchange, my sinful life, for His righteous life. And I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, when we see that the righteousness that is ours by faith is the perfect righteousness of Christ, then we see how glorious the good news of the gospel is. Amen? I want to close with three quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm sorry, I just couldn't make up my mind. So I just figured I'd share all three of them. First one's this. The main heresy is still justification by works. You get that? The main heresy is still justification by works works. They're not justified by works. They're justified by faith. There are many that think that they earn their way to heaven or can earn salvation or earn God's favor, but they can't. His favor has to be on you. His favor is seen in the cross. 
The second quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones is this, No one ever comes to Christ until the point of desperation has been reached. Have you come to that point of desperation? I remember it as if it was just a few minutes ago. And it was 39 years ago. I was desperate. You know what, folks? I still am. I still need Christ. So do you. You and I are guilty sinners before God. And unless there's repentance, you'll spend eternity in hell being punished by God for your sins for all eternity. You know why it's forever? Because there's no atonement. You rejected Christ. You rejected the only means of salvation. Remember, there is salvation in no other. There is no other name given. So if you reject that only way, you're left to your way. And you see what it's going to get you? Hell. That's why you need Christ. And you need, need Him for more than just fire insurance. The third quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones is this. You will never know the blessings of salvation until you have cast yourself, just as you are in utter helplessness, up the sole mercy of God. So have you cast yourself? Have you come to Him in utter helplessness? Have you pled for the mercy of God out of your desperation for Christ up to the sole mercy of God? See, salvation is of the Lord. It's apart from works. It's by grace through faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never surrendered to Him, then I'm pleading with you right now to surrender to Him. And take Jesus' words when he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to hear those encouraging words and to see from Scripture this wonderful truth by which the church stands or falls. Oh, I pray the church would come back to this principle and proclaim it loudly. Thank you for the Reformers. Thank you for them sacrificing everything so that we could have the Bible in our language so that we could sit here today and hear it being taught in our language. Thank you for the fight that they fought. Lord, may there be more people that rise up like Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Knox 
and many, many, many others. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your gift of eternal life. Please save someone today, we pray. In Jesus' name.